Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 82, Bathing Beauty Baffles Bashful Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. It's Memorial Day weekend, which marks the official beginning of beach season. So this week, we're discussing champion swimmer Annette Kellerman. Kellerman was a native Australian, and along with being a record-setting swimmer, she was a fitness and wellness guru, a vaudeville producer, an actress, and a clothing designer. Besides her athletic prowess, she was known for her physical beauty, appearing in Hollywood's first nude scene. A Harvard professor would go so far as to claim that he had scientific proof that she was the most beautifully formed woman of modern times. When she dared to appear in public in a one-piece bathing suit, it was too much for puritanical Boston, and 111 years ago, this bathing beauty was arrested on Revere Beach for indecent exposure. But before we talk about how a swimmer's scandalous suit shocked a city, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. A lot of this week's episode is going to take place on Revere Beach, which is a wide curve of white sand beach on Boston's North Shore. Directly across the mouth of Boston Harbor from Revere Beach is Nantasket Beach, a wide curve of white sand beach on Boston's South Shore. Now, Hull, where Nantasket Beach is located, is a little bit of a stretch for us when it comes to choosing a featured historic site, but we wanted to go with something beach-themed. Nantasket Beach started becoming a popular destination for beachgoers when steamers started daily service from Boston in the 1840s. In 1909, an amusement park called Paragon Park opened across the street from the beach. It had a Ferris wheel, a wooden roller coaster, bumper cars, a racing game, and a flume ride. In 1928, the operators contracted with the Philadelphia Toboggan Company to construct a grand electric carousel. It boasted two Roman-style chariots and 66 horses arranged in four rows. It was decked out with 35 original paintings and carvings of 36 cherubs and 18 goddesses. The music was automated, provided by a Wurlitzer band organ that ran on huge music rolls like a player piano. After a long period of decline, Paragon Park closed in 1984. The following year, the carousel was auctioned off. Three local businessmen bought it and made plans to preserve it. The land the park sat on was slated for development, so the carousel would have to move. In early 1986, the owners moved it a few hundred feet down the beach to a small lot that it shares with the park's clock tower and a former train station. That's where you'll find the Paragon Park Carousel Museum today. It's the last remaining ride from the former amusement park, one of just 18 four-row carousels ever manufactured, and one of just two similar carousels that remain in Massachusetts. With the summer season just getting started, the carousel is now open on Tuesday through Sunday from 1 to 5 p.m. Ride a classic carousel for just a $2 suggested donation. Since much of this episode is devoted to one woman's amazing athletic accomplishments, it only seems fitting to highlight women's sports for our upcoming event this week. On Saturday, June 24th, the Massachusetts Historical Society is hosting a talk by Red Sox historian Gordon Eads titled All-American Girls, Women in Professional Baseball. We're the members of the All-American League. We come from city near and far. We got Canadian, Irish, 
From the MHS website, baseball is not just a beloved pastime for American boys and men. From 19th century college teams formed at Vassar and Smith and the nationally celebrated Boston Bloomer Girls to the formation of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League when major male talent faced the World War II draft, women players have increasingly found ways to make their mark on the game. Today, more women than ever before are playing baseball at a world-class level, staking a claim on the most nostalgic and patriotic of American sports. There will be a reception at 3.30 p.m., and the event begins at 4. There's a $20 fee for non-members, and advanced registration is required. You can find the registration link in the show notes for this episode. And now it's time for this week's main topic. A book by Australian National University historian Angela Woolacott recounts Annette Kellerman's own version of what went down on Revere Beach that fateful day in 1907. She planned to go for a three-mile swim and walk down Revere Beach towards the water in her usual one-piece boys' racing suit. Others on the beach gathered around her with mixed reactions, and a policeman soon arrested her for indecent exposure. In 1953, the Boston Globe published a retrospective interview with Kellerman where she talked about the arrest. My arrest in Boston, which hit the headlines in America, was really a mistake. I was scheduled for a 13-mile meet in Boston and went to Revere Beach to train. There were ladies there in the fantastic beach costumes of the time. Dresses, underwear, corsets, shoes, complete to two antimacassars on their heads. Me, arrested. We were all terribly shocked, especially my father, for I was his innocent, protected little girl. Annette was in Revere that day to train for a race called the Boston Light Swim. I'll admit that I'm a little bit obsessed with this event. 1907 was the inaugural race, but it's still being held. Today, racers swim from Boston Light, the lighthouse on Little Brewster Island in the Outer Harbor, to the L Street Bathhouse in South Boston. The route swings around George's Island, Rainsford Island, Long Island, and Thompson Island before landing at L Street. I go to the YMCA and swim a mile in the pool a couple of times a week, and that's hard enough. With tides and currents, these folks end up swimming over 10 miles in cold water with no wetsuits allowed. That's hardcore. Back in 1907, the course ran in the opposite direction. Swimmers would begin at the Charlestown Bridge and swim out to Little Brewster Island. The course was about 13 or 14 miles, and, like today, conditions could mean swimmers would end up covering a lot more distance. If she was going to cover 13 miles of cold, open water, Annette wanted to do it in a practical swimsuit. As the BBC notes, In her native Australia, women taking part in competitions had worn short-legged, non-skirted costumes, the same as men's, since the 1870s. For years... Kellerman had worn a slightly modified boys' racing suit, which actually would have looked pretty similar to a modern women's Olympic swimsuit. The standard garment was one piece, with shorts that fell to the mid-thigh or below, and a tank top. For her own use, Annette Kellerman added darting to accommodate her breasts and sewed a pair of stockings to the bottom of the shorts. When she was arrested for indecent exposure, The only skin Kellerman was showing would have been her arms and her face. Kellerman's suit may not have looked like much, but she had constructed it for racing, not for the runway. 
In May of 1907, she told the Ohio Chronicle-Telegram, The best costume is the cheap, ordinary stocknet suit, which clings close to the figure, and the closer the better. It should be sleeveless, and there should be no skirts. They are very pretty and appropriate for the seaside, but not for the swimming pool. The turn of the 20th century doesn't seem like a very fun time to be a woman at the beach. While their husbands and fathers were off swimming and frolicking, the womenfolk would be clinging to a rope attached to an offshore buoy, praying that the waves wouldn't knock them down and drown them in their unwieldy bathing costumes. According to the Victoriana website, their clumsy Victorian and Edwardian-style bathing suits were often quite burdensome. Women typically dressed in black, knee-length, puffed-sleeve wool dresses, often featuring a sailor collar and worn-over bloomers trimmed with ribbon and bows. The bathing suit was accessorized with long black stockings, lace-up bathing slippers, and fancy caps. The impractical clothing meant few women could swim, which could have tragic results. In 1904, the steamer General Slocum caught fire in New York Harbor. Over 1,000 of the 1,300 passengers aboard, mostly women and children, drowned due to their heavy, waterlogged clothing and lack of practice with swimming. The disaster would have been fresh in everyone's mind when Annette Kellerman appeared in court the day after her arrest. She told the judge that she had no intent to be indecent, that she was only interested in safety and athletics. What difference is there from these legal costumes than wearing lead chains around our legs, she asked. Women can't learn to swim wearing more stuff than you can hang on a clothesline. The judge had mercy, saying that she could continue to wear her special swimsuit as long as she wore a long skirt or cape to hide her figure until she was in the water. Willicott points out that she made the most of the arrest and release. Certainly her Boston arrest and the trial that followed attracted national and international publicity that helped to make her a household name. The fact that she had already spent months performing at Revere Beach and building a fair amount of local fame may have helped her case as well. Annette Kellerman's appearance on Revere Beach in her unusual bathing costume was no accident. At the time, there was no such thing as jetting off to Maui for a beach vacation, and most people didn't have the resources to make a long journey to Myrtle Beach or the Outer Banks, or even Cape Cod. In 1875, the Boston, Revere Beach, and Lynn narrow-gauge railroad linked Revere to downtown Boston. And in 1896, the state took three miles of privately owned seashore by eminent domain. With wide, gently sloping sandy beaches and easy access by steamer or streetcar, by the turn of the 20th century, Revere Beach was one of Boston's favorite places to spend a summer afternoon. Landscape architect Charles Elliott, the protege of Frederick Law Olmsted, designed the waterfront to emphasize views of the beach, saying, What was it that the Metropolitan District sought to secure when it purchased this costly seacoast reservation? It was the grand and refreshing sight of the natural sea beach with its long, simple curve and its open view of the ocean. Nothing in the world presents a more striking contrast to the jumbled, noisy scenery of a great town. Soon the beach was lined with hotels and romantic rental cottages. There were amusement parks and roller coasters, bowling alleys and shooting galleries, Great Ocean Pier extending a quarter mile out into the harbor, and of course, nightclubs and dance halls to keep the good times rolling well into the night. 
When Annette Kellerman steered a course for America in 1906, she planned to parlay her swimming talents into a career at amusement parks. She started at Chicago's White City Park, but before long, she was lured to Wonderland along Revere Beach. She did high dives and extended underwater ballet routines in a clear tank on stage, during which she would hold her breath underwater for almost three minutes at a time. Biographer Woolicott says, During these early days when she was single and not yet a celebrity, she remembered she spent many happy hours with friends in backstage life. While working at Wonderland, she boarded with another worker there and his mother. Two years later, his wife, suing for divorce, explained that when Kellerman boarded with Herbert Patty and his mother, she and Patty would sit for hours in the kitchen, drinking beer and eating crackers and cheese. Sounds to me like Annette knew how to have a good time. She had been in the U.S. for a year and in Revere for a season before her arrest. She knew the local customs and she knew what American swimming costumes were like. She had to know that she was going to get arrested when she went strolling down the beach in her scandalously revealing swimsuit, leaving her upper arms exposed for all the world to see. One has to imagine that this was a publicity stunt, and Woolicott concludes, Certainly, her Boston arrest and the trial that followed attracted national and international publicity that helped to make her a household name. Kellerman had been working hard at becoming a household name for years at that point. Back in Australia, the March 27, 1902 issue of the Sydney Daily Telegraph carries a brief news item on the recent ladies' swimming championship meet for residents of New South Wales. It contains some of the earliest news coverage of a teenage girl who would soon become a global celebrity. Miss Annette Kellerman distinguished herself by appropriating the 100 yards and quarter-mile ladies' championships of New South Wales somewhat easily. Annette Kellerman was 15 when she started winning championships, and she would later recall that at that age, she caught mermaid fever. She was born in 1886 to a French mother and an Australian father, both of whom were professional musicians. As a small child, she had a disorder that led to bow-leggedness and very weak legs. Some sources report that it was polio, but many sources we looked at said that it was due to rickets. She was forced to wear heavy metal braces to straighten out her legs, and she used a cane to get around. When her legs began to straighten, doctors recommended teaching her how to swim as a way to regain some strength in her legs. Kellerman would later recall, When I was a little tot, about six years old, Dad took me to Cavill's Baths in Sydney, Australia, to learn to swim. Each day we walked with my brother and sister through the beautiful botanical gardens with its wondrous view of the most famous harbor in the world to our swimming lesson. I was awfully scared and did not learn quickly, but Mr. Percy Cavill, who was my teacher, never frightened me, so I soon lost all fear. Before I was 13 years old, I was like a fish in the water. As a teenager, Kellerman loved dancing, and she loved swimming, and she had little time for school. By 1903, she was giving paid swimming exhibitions at the Royal Theatre in Melbourne, with her family's reluctant support. Her mother didn't think that these public displays were proper for a woman, but the family had fallen on hard times, and Annette's swimming was bringing in money. Soon she was performing in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and around the country. The secret to her success may have been her willingness to appear in public in swimsuits that were considered revealing, 
even by the more relaxed standards of Australia. In April 1905, she added distance swimming to her aquatic repertoire. She was only the second person to ever swim a particular 10-mile stretch of the Yarra River, which passes through downtown Melbourne, and the first person to accomplish it in 20 years. Long-distance swims like that always made a spectacle, and Annette Kellerman and her father would ride the wave of publicity it generated all the way to Europe in 1905. Annette's first stop on her European tour was London, and the first thing she did upon arriving in London was to undertake a marathon swim. Angela Woolacott explains. Her 26-mile swim down the Thames from Putney to Blackwall, soon after they arrived in 1905, was a stunt her father suggested as a way to grab publicity, and it worked. She swam for three and a half hours through what she remembered as oily water amid tugboats and barges. But when she reached the Blackwall docks, journalists alerted ahead of time by her father were there. Because of that swim, the Daily Mirror contracted Kellerman for eight weeks to swim five days a week from one seaside resort to another between Dover and Margate, a total of about 45 miles a week, as preparation for an attempt at the Channel for eight guineas a week. During the summer of 1905, at just 19 years old, Annette made three attempts to swim the English Channel, all of which were sponsored by the Daily Mirror. A 2017 BBC story quotes Kellerman expert Peter Cox on the newspaper's interest in her swimming career. At the time, the Daily Mirror was pioneering the use of photographs in newspapers. So what better things to show than photographs of a woman in a swimsuit? The newspaper sponsored the channel attempt and dedicated many column inches to it. This made her famous. Annette Kellerman was only the second woman to attempt to swim the channel. The first had been Austrian Baroness Valperga von Isicescu, who was then considered the best swimmer in Europe. No woman would be successful until 1926. While Kellerman's attempt at the channel were unsuccessful, they certainly left her with interesting anecdotes, like the one about the time a man proposed to her while she was in the middle of the channel. Rather a unique place for an offer of marriage. I call it my channel proposal. A well-known swimmer, and a very fine one too, paced me during my swim. After a half hour or so of silence, to my great amusement, he turned suddenly and said, We go very well together in the double harness, don't you think? And forthwith made a proposal of marriage. Surprised? Yes. But more amused, I think. I told him I preferred waiting until I saw him out of the water, as I would never marry a little man. I met him after at the supper given in my honor, and found that he was of short stature, so I declined his flattering offer. With her fame secure, Kellerman traveled around continental Europe in 1906, entering races and giving exhibitions of distance swimming on the Seine, the Rhine, and the Danube. It was on the Danube that she faced Baroness Isicescu and secured the bragging rights as the best female swimmer in the world. A brief blurb in the June 22, 1906 issue of the Brisbane, Queensland newspaper The Week records, Miss Annette Kellerman recently swam 37 kilometers, about 23 miles, in the Danube in 3 hours, 11 minutes, and 20 seconds, 
Defeating Madame Isachescu, the Austrian swimmer. All those big open-water swims in Europe earned Annette publicity, and they helped her prepare for big events in the U.S., like the Boston Light Swim. After her 1907 arrest, we couldn't find evidence that she completed the inaugural Boston Light Swim that same year. No articles we could find gave her time, and the official history of the event says that the only finisher in 1907 was a man, with two other men dropping out. The following summer, though, she swam to Boston Light, making headlines all around the country. For example, here's what the Clarksburg, West Virginia Daily Telegram of August 1st, 1908 had to say. Great swim. By a girl. Annette Kellerman goes 19 miles from Boston Harbor. Annette Kellerman, the champion woman swimmer of the world who hails from Australia, performed a feat that for 50 years the best men swimmers of the world have failed to do. She swam from Boston Harbor to Boston Light, 15 miles on a direct line, and she did it in the face of a strong tide and wind that was almost a gale. To add to the triumph, her accompanying boat carried her all along the shoreline instead of striking directly for the light, thus adding about four miles to the distance. Another newspaper account says that she completed the swim from the Charlestown Bridge to Little Brewster Island in six hours and 20 minutes. The modern race is only 8 to 10 miles and runs in the other direction, but for a reference, the 2017 winner completed the swim in 2 hours and 49 minutes, and the first woman finished in 3 hours and 6 minutes. Great swim. For a girl. A better comparison might be Helen Lynn's 2015 double Boston Light Swim, where she swam from the L Street Bathhouse to Boston Light and back, over 16 miles in just under 8 hours. It makes Annette Kellerman's 19-mile battle against ties and currents seem pretty impressive. In the year between Kellerman's first and second attempts at the Boston Light Swim, a lot had changed in her life. First, news coverage of her arrest for indecency had its desired effect. Women around the United States were clamoring to get their hands on one of these newfangled swimming suits that would allow a woman to actually swim. Instead of modifying a boy's racing suit, Annette was soon designing and marketing her own line of swimming attire, including some models with short legs that fell above the knee, making them even more shocking than the one that she had been arrested for. For decades, one-piece swimsuits would be referred to as Annette Kellerman's, even when sold by a different company. By November 1908, The swimwear bearing her name was so ubiquitous that the Boston Post published this poem comparing her to the Gibson girl, then considered the peak of feminine beauty. No more the Gibson bathing girl shall grace the Newport summer whirl. Annette declares her garments wrong, at both ends too extremely long. The Gibson girl may be a peach, as she perambulates the beach. But now, if in the swim she'd be, she must with sweet Annette agree. Her heavy skirt she must replace with filmy raiment for the race. Think you she will consent to dress in such approach to nothingness? Ooh la la. Even in 1936, nearly 30 years after her arrest, Kellerman could be found presiding over a bathing suit fashion show in Florida, where her original... Overall, coverall had a place of honor. We're still in Florida to see some seaweed costumes and meet Annette Kellerman, 
dancing bell of Grandad's day. It's a bathing suit fashion show, and the accessories of old are on display for Father Neptune and company. Here's a fetching number and some 1890 novelties. The Annette Kellerman overall coverall. And now for the 1936 stuff. First are the scanty suits leaving much to the elements, but little to the imagination. The other major change that came to Annette Kellerman in 1907 was her Broadway debut. She'd been discovered on Revere Beach by promoter B.F. Keith. He hired her to perform two shows a day at the Keith and Proctor Fifth Avenue Theater for $300 a week. That's over $7,600 a week in 2018 dollars. Not bad for the daughter of two struggling musicians. When her seven-week engagement with Keith and Proctor expired, she moved from one New York theater to another, billed as The Diving Venus or The Australian Mermaid. In 1909... Keith and Proctor hired her back, this time for the unheard-of sum of $1,500 a week. Again, if you do the math, that's in the ballpark of $38,000 a week now. She performed amazing high dives, long underwater scenes, and pioneered the concept of synchronized swimming with her backup performers. Still, news coverage makes it clear that her willingness to wear a form-fitting swimsuit accounted for no small part of her fame as this article that otherwise complains about the indecency of vaudeville acts makes clear. Annette Kellerman, the diving Venus, has a good excuse not to mention a good figure for dressing as she does. It is a joy to see her spring into the air and take a header into the tank. Of course, some people might say that she leaves little to the imagination when she gets wet down and trots around in a suit that clings closer than... But oh, splash... The following year, in 1910, Kellerman took her own vaudeville troupe on a national tour. In yet another stroke of marketing genius, her tour coincided with an article that ran in the New York Times Sunday Magazine under the headline, Modern Woman Getting Nearer the Perfect Figure. Dr. Dudley Allen Sargent, director of the Harvard Gymnasium, ran a study to debunk the common belief at the time that American women were becoming more masculine over the generations. The counterexample he pointed to was none other than Annette Kellerman. Dr. Sargent, who is the foremost authority upon the physical development of women, has collected measurements of over 10,000 women students. From Wellesley, Radcliffe, Smith, and Vassar have come many hundreds of business-like measurement cards, which he has utilized in reaching his conclusions. Several years ago, he directed the modeling of two nude figures which represented the typical male and female as found among college students. The ages selected were between 18 and 25 years. As an aside, Sargent was taking the measurements of 10,000 female college students and translating them into nude sculptures. Teaching at Harvard must have been a pretty sweet gig. The article continues. Never has Dr. Sargent found either the ideal male figure or the ideal female figure, he says. Among the many thousands who have been examined at the gymnasium, not one has fulfilled every requirement. Annette Kellerman, the professional swimmer, whom he examined not long ago, is near the ideal type, he says. Kellerman was never one to let an opportunity like that pass her by. 
Soon, the promotional posters for her vaudeville show billed her as Annette Kellerman, the perfect woman. The measurements taken by Dr. Sargent were printed right on the poster, from her chest, waist, and hips right down to the circumference of her head and ankles. A chart labeled Measurements That Almost Surpass Belief compared them favorably to the measurements of the Venus de Milo and, somewhat dubiously, the goddess Diana. Having conquered athletics in the stage, Annette Kellerman now turned to the business of fitness advice. The Sargent article was nationwide news, and Kellerman would say that she had been scientifically proven to be the most beautiful woman alive. Capitalizing on the situation, she published magazine articles and newspaper editorials on the benefits of swimming and other forms of exercise starting in 1909. She wrote the books The Body Beautiful in 1912 and Physical Beauty, How to Keep It in 1918. Kellerman gave lectures on fitness and nutrition from New York to San Francisco and started a series of correspondence courses in late 1912, promising to reduce or increase your weight, improve your health, perfect your figure. Her testimonial for the course said, Become my pupil, and I will make you my friend. Devote but 15 minutes daily to my system, and you can weigh what nature intended. You can reduce any part of your figure burdened with superfluous flesh or build up any part that is undeveloped. My system stimulates, reorganizes, and regenerates your entire body. My latest book, The Body Beautiful, should be read by every woman, and I will send it to you free. It explodes the fallacy that lack of beauty or health cannot be avoided. In it, I explain how every woman can be vigorous, healthy, and attractive. Angela Woolicott, this time quoted by the BBC, says, She represented the fit, active, and spectacular female body, and urged other women to throw away their corsets and become fit and healthy. She saw herself as something of a guru for women's fitness, but others also saw her as an icon of feminine modernity. Her life as a celebrity fitness guru makes it sound as though Annette Kellerman would fit perfectly in today's media landscape. In keeping with that trend, she made the leap from stage to silver screen in 1913. Her first feature film was called Neptune's Daughter, and it of course featured plenty of underwater scenes and daring high dives, including a scene in which she is bound hand and foot and hurled off a 65-foot cliff into the sea. Annette appeared in several more movies in the next few years, always performing her own stunts. In later years, she would remember the 1916 film Daughter of the Gods as the best thing I ever did, because she did many hair-raising stunts and was never doubled, including doing a 72-foot dive from a tower and being thrown to the crocodiles. Perhaps swimming in a pool full of live crocodiles was only the second most daring thing she did in filming Daughter of the Gods. In several scenes, she appears nude, the first time a major Hollywood production included a nude woman, though each time her hair or the scenery was artfully arranged to conceal the naughty bits. A critic opined that Daughter was a photo play carefully calculated to shock the late Anthony Comstock and certain to please many others. As you probably guessed, the movie was banned in Boston. The production company spent nearly a year filming Daughter of the Gods in Jamaica. They employed a cast of 2,000, used up to 20,000 extras, brought in circus animals for some scenes, 
cast local children to fill a village of gnomes, changed the course of a river to create a more photogenic waterfall, and, generally speaking, created a spectacle of excess. It was the first movie to burn through a million-dollar budget, earning Annette Kellerman the nickname The Million Dollar Mermaid. She starred in several more silent films in the coming years, but never quite made the transition to talkies. Instead, she returned to vaudeville and to displays of diving and swimming prowess. A generation later, another swimmer-turned-actress would take on the moniker of Million Dollar Mermaid. American Esther Williams was a teenage swimming champion. When the 1940 Olympics were canceled due to the outbreak of World War II, she turned to acting instead, appearing in many aquatic spectaculars similar to the ones Kellerman had produced. In 1952, Williams played Kellerman in the biopic Million Dollar Mermaid. Without getting into the details, we'll just say that the movie is highly fictionalized. Suffice it to say that it features both canine star Rin Tin Tin and a boxing kangaroo. Nevertheless, the action does peak in a courtroom scene after William's Kellerman is arrested on a Boston beach for wearing a one-piece swimsuit that's too daring for its time. The real Annette Kellerman eventually moved back to Australia, living with her sister along the Gold Coast in Queensland. She died there in 1975. Her arrest on Revere Beach had propelled her to international stardom, allowing her to become a media darling, fashion designer, fitness guru, and star of stage and screen. At the same time, it introduced women around the country and around the world to the concept of fitness and exercise and freed them from their restrictive Victorian bathing costumes and slowly allowed them to adopt swimsuits that allowed for actual swimming. To learn more about Annette Kellerman's groundbreaking career, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 082. We'll have links to a biographical sketch by Angela Woolicott, Annette's 1975 obituary in the New York Times, and the 1908 article declaring her a perfectly proportioned woman. We'll have brief video clips from Neptune's daughter and the later film Venus of the South Seas, as well as photos of Annette Kellerman in her prime and an excerpt from Kellerman's chapter in the graphic novel Brazen, Rebel Ladies Who Rocked the World. Just for good measure, we'll link to information about the 2018 Boston Light Swim in August, and we'll throw in a video of Helen Lynn's amazing double Boston Light Swim from 2015. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. We got some comments on Twitter regarding our episode discussing the 1908 gun battle between anarchists and police in Jamaica Plain. Twitter user Boston Fitzy says, This was a great and unknown story to me. My great-grandfather was a Boston police patrolman slash sergeant in this period. I've actually found some fairly interesting articles about a couple of his adventures, so anything from this time period involving BPD is fascinating to me. And Tom Dunn, thinking about perhaps about today's Jamaica Plain, simply said, This explains so much. We also got some feedback about the show itself. I'm going to go out on a limb and speculate that Christopher Ryan is from Canada, our first confirmed international listener. He commented, I don't have the time, skills, or speaking voice to do it, but Ottawa could definitely use a podcast like Hub History. So many great stories to cover. 
And an old friend from our brief time as docents at a local historic site contacted us to say, love the show. Creative, informative, and great audio clips. Congrats. Devin used the contact us link on our website to reach out and say, you do extraordinary work with these podcasts. Please continue your hard work. I especially appreciate your posting of the original documents and references in your show notes. Thank you. Devin, you're too kind. We'll keep making the best podcast we can. You keep listening. And tell your friends. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with a show about the history of Boston Pride. Pride.